The joyousness and excitement that we each feel on this Lord's Day to have been granted this opportunity and privilege to come together, certainly how marvelous an occasion it is to lift our voices collectively in song, to utter words of great characteristic and prayer to our Heavenly Father, and of course to be able to open His blessed Word and allow it to touch our lives and to direct us in the pathways of life everlasting. Truly, what a marvelous way to commence this week as well as to close this first day of the week. As I mentioned some two Sundays ago, we had the interest last Lord's Day to actually commence a study of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, but the weather did not permit us to undertake that last Lord's Day evening. And so tonight shall be the opening lesson of that series considering the book of Hebrews. And perhaps as we notice, this one is entitled merely an introduction in which we will attempt to familiarize ourselves with some of the basic aspects of that noble New Testament letter and in so doing to prepare ourselves for really the thrust of all of those lessons that shall follow. As far as appreciating the, the length of that series, it's a bit difficult to say at this point, but we shall attempt nonetheless to approach it much like we have some of those recent studies in which we maneuvered our way through the book of Colossians, for example, at one point, as well as the book of Nahum in the Old Testament, and of course the book of Revelation that closed our, our study of the New Testament on, on one earlier occasion. Perhaps in fairness, some introductory thoughts to even begin this series might well be stated in language and in words much like this. Quite often, I think each of us have been in a position to understand that when we come to perhaps reading through from opening verse to the closing one of some particular book, we come to find that we glean more from it than just picking up at random and reading a chapter perhaps of the Word of God. But if we read it through continuously and allow some of the thoughts to rest and to perhaps meditate upon our mind, we come to a deeper understanding and a richer perspective on some of the things that might well be stored as nuggets of truth within that epistle and book. It might well be that Hebrews will open up in that way for us. Perhaps as you and I have read Hebrews in times past, certain chapters almost leap out to us, like chapter 11, that great honor roll of faith that's represented there. But maybe we forget some of the other chapters, chapter 7, chapter 12, chapter 2, and yet as we move through the book, we shall find that they too speak volumes about the greatness of what is to be found within this book of the Bible. Thus, in that regard, let's begin a rather thrilling, a somewhat scintillating study of the entire book, trying to appreciate some of its themes and the way in which it works together. And so with that, those thoughts perhaps stated, here's some facts about the book of Hebrews. Some of them may be a bit strange, but nonetheless, I think they'll be well worth at least appreciating. In its 13 chapters, we appreciate some 303 verses, and all on the totality of all of them, now we reach the following rather unusual thoughts. For instance, if one were to be asked, who wrote the book of Hebrews? You notice that our answer to that question is rather distinct from the answer we would give to so many of the other books in the New Testament. You and I have no question, for instance, who the author of Romans was. No question as to who wrote, for instance, the book of the Revelation, because all of those books identify their author. But you and I will read from opening verse to last in Hebrews and shall find that the inspired penman did not tell us who wrote it. That hasn't kept, of course, men from trying to decipher who it was. And the list can be a bit lengthy. There are some who feel certain that Apollos wrote it. 
There are others who are just as convinced that Luke had a hand in it. There are others who are just certain that Paul wrote it. Perhaps each one is one for which an interesting and somewhat compelling argument can be made, but in the finality, we simply do not know. And for instance, at that point, I would wish to somewhat leave it in exactly that fashion. You might also notice, whereas unlike some other books for which we know the place of writing, again, the same is not true of Hebrews. We cannot pinpoint where it was that the writer was when he penned and wrote it. The only reference to a place is in Hebrews 13.24. And even there, though the mention is made of Italy, and one might surmise that perhaps it was written in Rome, the text still doesn't say that. And hence, it could well be the author was sending greeting or at least making mention of brethren who were present in Italy. You again, can I, you and I again are not certain, in fact, as to where the book is written. Notice also next, there are some things of which we seemingly can be very sure. I have listed those for you in language like this. From the tenor of the book, especially chapters 10 and following, it would seem you and I can be exceedingly certain that the book was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. That would place it earlier than 70 A.D. That, of course, aids us in some fashion, but notice as we get to some of those later chapters, it will seem virtually certain that it was written prior to Jerusalem's destruction. As far as the thrust and the purpose for, for this book, I would ask each of us to note how useful it can be to fulfill a similar purpose for us today, at least in principle. The book of Hebrews was written to those who were Christians, but nonetheless had been of Jewish background. That is to say, though in times past they had been Hebrews, serving beneath the law of Moses, if you please, or at least very familiar with it, they had obeyed the gospel. However, in so doing, great persecution, troubles and problems began to come their way, and so they were beginning to be severely tempted to leave the Christ, to turn back to a familiar way that they once had known, because beneath that system they did not experience the hardship, the persecution. They thus were beginning to forsake the Savior and to go back to a previous system, this book in its 13 chapters will present one reason after another as to why that decision was a bad one. Why they ought not to revert to a former system but stick with the Christ. To remain solidly and steadfastly with Him and they would be greatly eternally rewarded. Again, in principle, I would ask, Cannot you and I be tempted at times to forsake the way we know to be right? To give in to the difficulties of the moment? you see that kind of temptation and the pressures that can sometimes come with it. Maybe in principle we can begin to see some of the reasons why they should be steadfast are the same ones why we should be steadfast too. The same reasons that should have motivated them and given them great, given them great incentive to be firm and true and loyal to Christ should be the same reasons you and I should be firm and loyal and true to Christ as well. Thus, that'll be one of the grand lessons that we shall glean from a study of the book of Hebrews. As you come near the close of that slide, you'll notice one of the reasons and one of the statements about this book that somewhat make it unique among the New Testament books. In its 13 chapters, it is full of references to the Old Testament. 
but not just any references. It's full of references in particular to the structure of the Mosaic system. What was the tabernacle for? What were the offerings and sacrifices for? What purpose did they serve? What, in fact, were the means by which they brought benefit to the children of Israel? The author of this book is going to take those as gigantic lessons and set them in parallel fashion to the benefits we enjoy in Christ, and he will show with ease the superiority of the Christian system. Again, that'll be one of the great reasons as to why those beneath this system and those who are striving or at least tempted to revert to the former should not do so. You might also appreciate some of the central ideas. We did note that when we did Colossians and also the Revelation. In language like this, if you and I were called upon to embed a key thought or perhaps a central issue from this book in our mind, without question it would be this. The utter and absolute superiority of Christ and the gospel over and compared to any other system, but particularly the system of the Old Testament the system known as the law of Moses, the system in which the children of Israel strove to stand in a proper fashion by virtue of it. Again, the Christian system is far superior. This book will explain why that is. The explicit and sometimes deep and profound reasons as to why that in fact can be said. Some of the particular ways in which that superiority is demonstrated There are key figures from the Old Testament, and rather notable ones at that, that are chosen, men like Moses, men like Joshua, those who in fact stood high and in great regard beneath that old system, and yet the Hebrew writer will in fact try to compare each one to Christ. Jesus is going to trump all of them in great superiority. He in fact and his system will absolutely quash all of them in terms of benefit, power, capability of righteousness, and the ultimate nature that each one of them has. Thus, we shall be able to revisit some of the great figures of the Old Testament and see how they, in fact, are inferior to the Christ of the New Testament. As we get to chapters 8 and following, we will particularly notice some interesting contrasts between the priestly system of the Old Testament that which descends through Aaron, that which was a great appreciative fact of the law of Moses in the Levitical system. The book of Leviticus, in fact, sets those ideas before us. Jesus, in fact, will again be compared to them. Jesus will be shown to be superior to that system and all the benefits that it afforded. Could we not pause to say how blessed we are to be Christians, to live beneath this system and have a book like this? to help us appreciate the grandeur and the loveliness that's ours to be those who serve beneath the system of Christianity today. The key person of the book is no doubt Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. I've already mentioned how often he's compared to these other people. You see, and in those comparisons, he will be shown to be superior, and his system is greater. As far as the key word, other than the word Jesus, it's the word better. Don't you find that word interesting? Christ will be shown to be better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the Levitical system. His system of sacrifices and other matters shown to be better. And is his covenant not a better one? Are the sacrifices that were offered beneath the Old Testament inferior and not as good? 
for justification as those beneath this system. Better? You'll notice that I list for you that word occurs 13 times in the King James translation. On average, that's once per chapter. You'll notice in Greek it occurs a little bit more often than that. Some of those occasions are translated with other words like good as opposed to better. But remember, in which we understand the comparative and superlative cases, good, better, and best, again, some of them could well have been translated better. Thus, as we appreciate the better system of Christianity and the better priest that it has and the better system on which it's based, may we come to appreciate those thoughts lovingly and piercingly in our study of the book of Hebrews. I mentioned earlier the key thought about Jesus. Inasmuch as the key figure is none other than he, you'll notice at the bottom just a few of the ways in which we see various roles occupied by him. There are times when the fact of his being the Savior is emphasized. There are passages in which as high priest he is emphasized. There are other passages that directly make reference to his apostleship. Finally, we will notice some in which the notion of his sacrifice is set before us. Hebrews has been stated to be the gem of the New Testament. Some have even gone so far as to say it's the gem, G-E-M, of the whole Bible. Because in order to appreciate it, one must be thoroughly acquainted with the Old Testament. It references it so often. And yet at the same time, one must be rather conversant with the New Testament because its premises and promises are based to show the superiority of them. You and I will thus have an opportunity to visit both Old and New Testament often as we uncover the wonderful secrets of the book of Hebrews. To say all of that is perhaps to bring us to a few moments this evening in our lesson when we might at least make note of a few of the high spots in the book of Hebrews. These will no doubt be revisited with great a great deal more detail as we come to the particular chapters and verses in which they appear. But nonetheless, some of the high spots already can be those matters that can greatly be beneficial to us. Just as Colossians had its high spots and key verses, just as Revelation had its high spots and key verses, so too will the book of Hebrews. And I might ask as we look through some of these high spots, try to decipher, if you will, what do you suppose would be the one or two key verses of the book of Hebrews? What verses would summarize in a concise fashion the entirety of the book and set before you and me perhaps the key ones to commit to memory so that in a moment's notice we'd be ready to recall the basic thrust and theme of the entire book of Hebrews? Perhaps we can well begin in chapter number 1. The author hits the ground running, so to speak. Immediately the preeminence of Christ is set forth in no uncertain terms in comparison first to the angels. Though one may regard the angels, of course, as very special beings, and those who humanity on various occasions has looked to and even worshipped, Christ immediately is shown to be vastly superior even to them. And as if that isn't great enough, we notice immediately the character of the Word of Christ and the Word of God is set before us at opening glance. Brother Lucas read for us the opening three verses of the first chapter. God who at sundry times and in divers manners 
spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Pausing even there, you'll notice a contrast has already been asserted. There was a time when God spoke through to the fathers by virtue of the prophets, sharing his word and his will by virtue of those specially decreed individuals, and in so doing, note the contrast, now he is spoken unto us by son. How great is Christ? He's immediately greater than the prophets. For God now speaks through him and not through, say, prophets, as he did on that occasion. As you and I appreciate that message somewhat more thoroughly, we are immediately reminded of thus the heed that is given to us to pay great attention to that word. If Christ's word reigns supreme and is that word by which God communicates to us today, and certainly it is, then chapter 2 begins by warning all of us so powerfully how often we should revert to that word. In fact, some of the statements of that are so very familiar to us. For you'll notice as he begins, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them sleep. For if the word spoken by angels, and there's the mention of angels again, if the word spoken by angels, you'll notice in verse 2, was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Again, a rather great warning. You and I ought thus not be negligent. We ought not to ignore the teaching of the Scriptures. We ought not to, in fact, allow other things to be superior to it. We should appreciate that just as surely as the word spoken by angels received punishment when those did not follow or heed it. What do you suppose will happen to us since Christ is greater if we ignore his word? The answer is self-evident, isn't it? If those punishments were given forth to those who neglected the word of angels... The punishment reserved for those that neglect the word of Christ and the word of God shall be even the severer. But you'll notice in that which quickly follows, the greatness of Christ immediately set forth for us in verses 9 and 14 of chapter 2, for there he tasted of death for every man. This book never veers far from exalting Christ. It never distances itself far from lifting high the banner of Jesus, the Son of God. And that's a highlight for your life and mine, or at least it should be, isn't it? That none of us, in fact, should strive to walk far from the footsteps of our Savior. Because aren't those footsteps the one that shall lead to everlasting life? Follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, in the words of Revelation 14.4. Here we find the writer of Hebrews helping us in these great words to appreciate that same lesson again. In verse 14 of chapter 2, the fact Christ took upon himself the form of flesh and blood, that he could experience the temptations of life and give us aid that we might overcome them like he did. For verse 18 of chapter 2, he is able to aid those who will come to him. Who's the one then to whom we should go to find the aid, the encouragement and the sustenance that can lead us through the trials and difficulties of life? In chapter 3, we find that Jesus, again, by contrast as well as comparison in a way, in verses 5 and 6, we're reminded that he is greater than Moses because Moses was a servant in the house. Christ, as a father or at least as the builder of his own house, 
he thus must be greater than the servant in the house. Doesn't that help us again see that all of that Old Testament, that law of Moses, though it did serve its purpose and it had its place to help individuals live at that time in the way God desired, it has been superseded by a far superior law today, the law of the wonderful Son of God. You'll notice also following chapter 3, we come to the closing four verses of chapter 4, in which following the comparison with Joshua, we find that a fourfold encouragement is given to you and me. It begins, of course, in verse 12 with another reminder of how great this word is. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What thus are one of the next blessings that follow? Note verse 13. There is an all-seeing eye watching you and watching me. Thus it's futile to hide from him. It is useless to try to run from him. There is in fact that eye that he knows everything done and said and thought by you and by me. So much so that verse 15, we have a great one who never sinned. And thus he can serve as our high priest and bring forth our petitions and pleas unto the heavenly Father. And thus in verse 16, the power of prayer is set before us. You and I can boldly come before the throne of grace and find grace to help in every time of need. Do you and I employ the opportunity of prayer as often as we should? We are told there that with boldness we'd have the privilege of coming before the throne of God to allow Him to carry our loads and our burdens. Thus we come to chapter 5. We notice the humility of Christ in verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. The Hebrew writer, though some would say not so, but you and I will learn differently, he too highlights the necessity of obeying those commandments. Just like the priest was supposed to do precisely what God ordered, so too you and I today because we too are priests, not high priests, but priests, we too should do precisely and exactly that which the Word has revealed to us, taking great heed to follow it conscientiously, diligently, and carefully. As you notice the conclusion of verse 5, a dire warning set forth calling us to appreciate that the time perhaps is come when we should be teachers, but maybe we're not. And yet we are still those who are in need of being instructed again in the most fundamental, basic, elementary truths of the gospel. And if that be true, shame on you and shame on me. For there we're reminded of God's desire and command for us to mature and to grow in the faith. And the time to come when we should be able to properly and correctly teach and instruct others in the blessed, wonderful ways of eternal life. So much so that chapter 6 puts it in language like this. The encouragement to steadfastness mentioned in verses 1 through 3 reminds us that there are some basic truths of the gospel. But the Hebrew writer says you should have, you should have advanced beyond that. You should long since have known those things. They should be a fundamental part of your mental framework by now. You shouldn't need to constantly revisit them. You should be ready for some meteor matters by now. 
we're going to find that that is an ever-present challenge, not only to the people of that day, but to you and me too. Am I chewing on the things that I should be chewing on, or must I still be fed with baby's milk? The Hebrew writer is going to ask us that question. Notice later in chapter 6, we are again reminded about the danger of apostasy. How that you and I can fall and go back to a livelihood in which we are lost. Once saved, always saved is not a Bible doctrine. It's a figment of man's imagination and one that's often taught. But the Hebrew writer says in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, you once knew about salvation, but you now do not. If you turn back to that law of Moses and strive to find sanctification in it, you will forfeit your salvation. doesn't sound to me as if once saved, always saved harmonizes with that text. And as we proceed onward in our marching, we find chapter 7 will now mention so carefully the high priesthood of Jesus. And it will be compared to a gentleman named Melchizedek. And we shall find that perhaps that's the single deepest argument in all of the New Testament. We need to understand it and to apply it and to use it. And thus Melchizedek will be mentioned in chapters 5, 7, and 8 three times. And as we find the mention... The meaning will be very lovely for us to understand. Following those matters as chapter 7 closes, we shall find Jesus set forth again so high and in regard for you and for me. Some of that highness expressed in the fact he's undefiled, higher than the heavens, and separate from sinners. Doesn't it sound as if he'd be able to aid and to help us and to be the one through whom we can find entrance into everlasting life? Sure he is. And that's the Hebrew writer's point. Joshua couldn't offer it. Moses couldn't offer it. But Jesus can and does. In all fairness, might we notice in chapter 8, then verses 6 to 13, in clear and rather comprehensible fashion, Jesus and his law is said to be superior and better. You see, that old covenant had some faults. It was not perfect And the Hebrew writer says, if it had been perfect, there would never have been a need for another one. You can't improve on perfection. But he says, Christ now has a better covenant. It's based on better promises. And thus that old law is now done away with. How clear is that language? And so in chapter 9, the tabernacle now comes before us. Indeed, that Old Testament tabernacle that consisted of the outer courtyard, there was the holy place and the most holy place, all three had great significance. And they also have great meaning for you and me still today. I wonder what that meaning is. We shall find it in chapter 9. As we learn that that most holy place was such a vital and important place, today, what is the most holy place? Are you and I in it? Are we marching toward it? Hold on to chapter 9. We'll see if we can't uncover that in clarity and also in great principle and power. You'll notice carefully in verses 11 through 15 in chapter 9, we notice that Christ has come as a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. You see, there is the discussion of a tabernacle for us today. We need to understand that because it's a better tabernacle than what they had. As we come to understand that more thoroughly, it does bring us, doesn't it, to chapter 10. In the reality of chapter 10, we have another set of contrasts. 
what the old law could not do versus what the new law can and does. Those descriptions are probably somewhat familiar. Beginning in verse 1, culminating in the middle portion of that chapter, one of the most familiar passages in Hebrews most likely. We'll need to see its placement. How does it relate to the tabernacle discussion that preceded it? And how does it lead into the discussion of faith that will follow it? All of that will come to play as we come to appreciate the interesting features of chapters 10, 11, and 12 of the book of Hebrews. You'll note carefully with me as chapter 10 closes. We have what for some is one of the most unusual statements of the book. Specifically, you'll notice in chapter in verses 37 and following, you and I will find one of the most remarkable contrasts between you and me and those that serve beneath the law of Moses. We shall find what that is and what lessons are in it for us. In chapter 11, the honor roll of faith is mentioned. Name after name from the Old Testament is listed. And notice, some things are said about them, but some things are not. What's the highlight of the chapter? What's its central thrust and meaning? Chapter 6 perhaps puts it in words like this, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Inasmuch as those honor roll of faith persons are mentioned, we shall find today the greatness of the topic of faith for us. And we shall find that so often what men think faith is, is not the way God defines it. That alone should make us look forward to studying that chapter and find what then is God's definition of faith. And thus, does that mean I'm faithful or not? In chapter 12, we find a description about steadfastness. Those people who again were being tempted to revert to a law of Moses or to some other former system, one final encouragement of exhortation is given. In essence, the Hebrew writer says you'd better think twice before you strive to turn back to a system other than the gospel. Do you really understand what you're bargaining for? Do you realize what you're trading in for what you're about to get? Chapter 12 will make mention of, in fact, the discipline ushered forth by God. I wonder what he'll have to say about that. And then we come to the closing chapter of the book of Hebrews. One final list of admonitions. Some of them are short, brief statements admonishing us to never be given to covetousness, but to always obey those who have the rulership over us. And as the book comes to its conclusion we find in very quick statements the reminiscences of encouraging us to be steadfast always, even to the very point of death itself. As Hebrews is put in language like that, what now would you and what would I say maybe would be the key verses, those that perhaps above the others would quickly summarize and would quickly set forth the basics of the book. It would seem to me that these three would do the job well. First of all, we might make note of chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. Again, making note of Christ and his comparison to the old system. Following that, chapter number 10, verses 7 on to verse number 12. In particular, the greatness of the Old Testament, but the far greater nature of the new. Finally, verses 22 and following of chapter 10, where even issues such as attendance will be mentioned. 
matters like drawing near unto God, issues that relate to the very character of considering one another to provoke unto love and to good works. All of that will have its rightful place in our study of Hebrews at the, pro- at the appropriate and at the proper time. For tonight, this introductory set of lessons that have all been drawn throughout the book have challenged us perhaps to appreciate these final thoughts. As we begin our study of Hebrews, I would submit to you that encouragement is just as needed today as it was then. In the midst of a world seemingly so overwhelmed and overcome with sin, with wickedness, with iniquity, in all of its ugly and various forms, you and I still always need encouragement to hold true and fast to the God of heaven. Hebrews, in part, will give us that encouragement and that incentive. It'll do it often by comparing Christ to what was true before, but that should give us a deeper understanding of just how privileged we are still today. Furthermore, we might also notice that the central message is always Christ. The first letter, and virtually speaking the last, is still Jesus. Your life and mine should revolve around him as if he's the axle and you and I are the outer spokes that are built around it. Is he the centerpiece of your life and is he the centerpiece of mine? If he's not, Hebrews will challenge us to make some changes and it'll set before us the need to make some changes as well. Could it be tonight that we each in this short consideration of some major thoughts of the book have come to realize that there's a better way and we're not following it? Maybe in an individual fashion you've begun to follow that which is not better. Hebrews is going to challenge you to forsake that which is less than better and to follow that which is better. If you need to do that tonight and you've been prompted and challenged to do that, we are here to aid you in your public response. If you've never become a Christian, the book of Hebrews, as you can already see, is going to hit you right between the eyes. It's going to over and over again ask you, why? Why am I in this state when I can do something about it? I suspect you have no good answer to that right now. And you never will have a great answer to it. Satan is always going to fill your mind with excuses. This reason and that why next Sunday will be a better time. Next month will be an even better one than that. That better time will never come if Satan has his way. You need to take that first step tonight if that's the need in your life and obey the precious gospel, the better gospel. It is perfect in every regard. It has better promises. It has the ideal Savior. In fact, its destiny and reward cannot be beat. If tonight you need to respond in faith to what the Lord has said, believe Jesus to be precisely what he said he was, the Son of God. Put your trust and confidence in Him. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you need to do that tonight, the baptismal waters are ready and warm. All could be accomplished in but a few moments. If you have already known the nature of Christianity, but now the issues have set in your mind that you have started following something that's not better. You're basing your life on what you can do or what someone else can do with you or for you, that's a mistake. Not only is it a mistake, it's an eternal disaster. For you see, nobody else can lead to heaven like Jesus. You need to base your life ultimately, firmly, and fully on Him. And if you need to come back to Him tonight, don't delay. Don't procrastinate again. Next Sunday won't be any better. 
tonight. Today's the day of salvation. The Hebrew writer is going to say that in chapter 3. Thus, if we can already borrow that phrase, today is the day of salvation. If you needed the prayers of brethren to assist in forgiveness, into approaching your heavenly Father that he might forgive, we'd be honored to pray with you tonight. If we could be of assistance in any of those fashions and ways, won't you let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?